Bible then, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 12, we can get right into it. Praise the Lord. Mark chapter 12. We're going to pick back up where we left off in Mark. And we'll start reading Mark chapter 12 and verse 13. And it says there, And they sent certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, for you regard not the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him, marveled at his answer to that question. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask you, Lord, once again, that we can just see, Lord, the, the beauty and the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the way he carried himself and the answers that he had, and also the teaching that he gave us in, in just a few words he could say a lot. And so we just ask that you'll open our heart and our understanding to hear and receive your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the context hasn't been in Mark for a few weeks, but where we're dealing with this is it's the Passion Week. So he's on his way into Jerusalem to die. That's what's coming up. This is the third day of his last week on earth before he's resurrected. And so he, if you remember, it's the triumphal entry where he comes riding in on a young colt. The people spread their garments before him as he came and they're crying out and singing praise to him as the coming king. Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he comes in that way, Jesus enters the temple and he clears out all the crooks. The money changers and those that bought and sold doves and animals, he gets rid of all of them. And he proclaims, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. But you people, he tells them, have made it what? He says, you all have made it a den of thieves. Well, guess what? That wasn't like really well received by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And so it says in Mark eleven eighteen that after he did that, the scribes and chief priests heard it and they sought then how they might destroy him because they were offended. And so their first avenue and how they're going to destroy him is through asking him questions, which is what we're going to start with tonight. But to go backtrack just a little bit, they'd already been doing that. They'd already been trying to trap him with questions. You know, back in Mark 8, when we talked about that, it says that the Pharisees came and began to question him. They're questioning him, seeking a sign from heaven. And it says they were tempting him or testing him. They're, t they're saying to him, so you claim you're the Messiah, you're this great whatever. They're saying, then if you are, then show us a sure sign from heaven and we'll believe. And of course, his answer was, it says he sighed deeply. It's like, you all are wearing me out. If you remember that. And he says, only an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. He says, no sign is going to be given. And not what you're looking for anyways. Except, he said, the sign of Jonah. 
And then in Mark 10, 2, they come to him again. The Pharisees came to him and asked him, they're setting him up again, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? And once again, it says they're testing him, they're tempting him. And so what they're trying to do is they're publicly trying to get him to contradict the law of Moses. Well, Moses allowed us to do this. What are you going to say? And he's like, wait a minute. You got to go way back to what else Moses wrote. He didn't just write that. He wrote Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And he established his marriage right there and said, it's a permanent thing. And it was for the hardness of your heart that he allowed you to divorce. It wasn't something he commanded you to do. You guys got that all wrong. So here it's saying in Mark eleven eighteen coming into this, it's saying, if you look back there, it says they're, they're looking to destroy him. And then we have in Mark eleven twenty eight. it says this, and they say unto him, here they're starting in with the questions as he comes into Jerusalem. This is the first of the questions. By what authority do thou these things, and who gave thee this authority to do these things? And Jesus answers this question with a question. Well, let me ask you something. Where did this authority of John come from? Was it of God or was it of men? And they realized, uh-oh. We just got trapped in our own trap because they realized if they answer that either way, they're going to be in trouble. And they said, we just can't tell you. And he's like, well, then I'm not answering that question either. And then he proceeds into what we went into the last time at the beginning of Mark chapter 12. <laughs> what happens there? He gives that parable of the husbandman and the vineyard. And he's pointing that right at them. That I'm talking about you all, and they realized it, and they really got upset. And so look at the end of that in Mark chapter 12, 12. He says, they sought to lay hold on him, and the only reason they didn't is because it says they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them, and they left him, and they went their way, but not for long. So who is this group? Who is the group of verse 13? And they, it says, send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. Well, it's the Sanhedrin. And there are the big council. They're the big dogs. They're the big religious leaders in Jerusalem. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And it consists of three major groups, the Sanhedrin did. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And each one of these these groups is going to ask him a question coming up here to test him. All three groups we have asking questions and testing Jesus. So we have the Pharisees that we're going to look at tonight in verses 13 to 17. They're going to ask him a question about taxes. And then the Sadducees in verses 18 to 27, they ask him a question about the resurrection. And they're trying to trip him up and trick him and trap him. And the scribes in the rest of the chapter, verses 28 to 44, they're asking him about scriptural interpretation because that was their expertise. And they're checking him out on that. What's interesting is that all three groups address him as, in the King James, it says master. But it really means teacher. So they're showing him all this respect, even though they're insincere, every one of them, when they do it. But here's the thing. Jesus' answer with each time he answers their question, it shows them that he does have the authority that they are insincerely given to him. And it's authority that goes way back to Mark chapter 1, if you remember that. Remember what it says he came into synagogues after he had been out in the wilderness tempted of the devil, and he comes back, it says, in the power of the Spirit. So he had a power and an authority 
that the people recognized. And when he taught, there was an authority there that wasn't as described. It says in Mark 1.22, the people, when they heard him, they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. And he's showing that there, this authority that he has as a man sent from God and taught from God and one that truly knows the scripture by the way he answers. All of these things are Jewish situations, Jewish scriptural problems they're bringing to him. And he answers every one of them with the authority and the anointing that he had. And so we have here in verse 13, the Sanhedrin, this group, they sent a very unlikely group of people to question him, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And that's what it says. They send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians. Well, they're like, couldn't have been more opposite. So the Pharisees were like very nationalistic. They were very Jewish oriented. They were opposed to Rome, opposed to his taxes, said we need to get back to the law and holiness in order to bring the Messiah back. That was their goal. And the Herodians were just the opposite. So the Pharisees were anti-Rome. The Herodians were pro-Rome, pro-Herod. They didn't have any problem with the taxes. And so you couldn't have had two opposite, more opposite groups getting together. The only thing these guys had in common was what? They hated Jesus. And they wanted to destroy him and get him out of the way. If you remember back in Mark 3, verse 6, they came together there with the man with the withered hand. After that happened, and they were both in there, it says they took counsel there. It says again, way back then, early in his ministry, on how they might destroy him. So this is happening all over again. And so it says here, at the end of verse 13, that they send the two of them, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and what's their purpose? It says to catch him in his words. And that word, catch, it literally means to trap or to hunt. It's a word, it's the only place it's ever used in the New Testament. And it's a word that was used in Greek literature the way you would trap or hunt an animal for food. And so what it's showing is it's the violent purpose and nature of what they're doing to him. They're trying to catch him like an animal, to hunt him. Catch him, hunt him, snare him by his words. And how do they do that? It says in verse 14, when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that you are true and care for no man, that thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. And they're coming, trying to flatter him. They're acting like, oh, we just got this honest question we want to ask you. And when you read Luke's account, it said that they sent unto them that these guys were spies. And spies are somebody, they're trying to find out something secretly, gain some kind of knowledge secretly. And it says there that they would feign that they were just men, that they were righteous men. So they're coming to him like, oh, we just have this honest question and we know you're all these things and we just want you to honestly give us an answer. And can you believe that people still do that today? They set you up and come and ask your opinion about something like they really want to know what you think. And all they're doing is taking your words and they're going to use them and twist them against you. You believe that happens today? I can. I can it does. It really does. It happens all the time. But Jesus, <laughs> what's amazing is they give him four insincere compliments. They say, you're a man of integrity. You are true. You're a fair man. You care not for any person or no man. You're impartial. And you're truthful. You teach the way of God in truth. And here's the thing. Everything they say about the Lord Jesus Christ is totally true. The only problem with these guys is they don't believe a word of what they're saying. 
Because they said he's deceiving the people. They don't think any of this. But actually, what they say is exactly true. So under the guise of being an upright and righteous man, these people come and they ask Jesus the kind of question they're asking him is a yes or no question. They're asking him in a way they want him to just answer yes or no. Is it lawful? Look what it says there. The end of verse 14. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? Just like the, you'll hear these guys say it to politicians a lot of times. Don't give us one of those political answers. Just answer the question. Yes or no? That's a simple, straightforward question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so that tax they're referring to was what's known as a poll tax or a head tax. And it began way back in AD 6 when Judea became a Roman province. And this is a different tax than the property tax or the tax known as a custom tax or a tax on goods. It was a census tax, a head tax, a poll tax. Every single man or woman that lived in, because it wasn't all of, all of Israel that was a province of Rome. Like Galilee, where Jesus came from, was not under this tax. So they're kind of asking him like he's an impartial person. But the places that were, everybody had to pay the tax. And it was a denarius, a silver coin that was equal to one day's wages. And whether that thing should be paid or not, back in that day, you understand, it, that was a hotly debated issue. And without exception, whether you lived in one of those provinces or not, every Jew opposed the tax. Every Jew was against it. And so when it first began, that's what gave rise to what was known as the zealots. So one of those zealots was one of Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealot. But that gave rise to the zealot movement. And if you remember back in Acts 5, verse 37, it talked about one of those, Judas. It says he rose up in the day of the taxing and gathered a lot of people around him. And they were going to revolt against Rome, putting this tax on him. But it says he was crushed and stopped and the people dispersed. But that movement, in a sense, it kept on, and it kept on past Jesus' day all the way up until A.D. 66-7 when Rome came in and they totally destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And it was because of these zealots. They were going to crush them, crush that movement. But here's the hypocrisy in the question that they're posing to Jesus. So you got these two different groups. So if he said, on the one hand, don't pay the tax... What's going to happen? He's going to be accused by the Herodians who were in favor of the tax. They were in favor of Rome. They're going to go and accuse him of sedition. They're going to be like, look, you got one of these zealots in his group. And he's from up there in Galilee. That's where Judas the zealot that tried to oppose the Roman tax was from. He's just another one just like that. So if he answers, don't pay the tax, they're going to get him, right? But if he says, yes, pay the tax, he's got all the people against him because everybody hated that tax. And they're going to be like, how can this guy who says he's the Messiah be the Messiah when the Messiah is going to come and overthrow this government and give us our freedom? So either way, he's sunk, isn't he? This was like the perfect plot, it would seem, on the surface. So the Jews hated being under Rome's thrum and being taxed. And a yes or no answer, either way, which is what they're asking him, is going to hang the Lord Jesus. But look in verse 15. Again, he wasn't fooled in the least. They asked him, shall we give or shall we not give? It says, but he, what? Knowing, he had a knowing of their hypocrisy. And he said unto them, 
Again, just like he said those other times when they come with their questions, why are you tempting me? He says, bring me a penny that I may see it. So like I said, verse 14, they come flattering him with all of that. They're trying to get him off guard and to give an answer that he's going to regret. And if you remember, back when we did Joshua, remember that the Gibeonites, they come to Joshua, oh, we've heard of your God and all the great things he's done, and so we've come to submit ourselves to you. And they flatter him. And to get him to do something that he later regrets, right? And that just goes to show you, Joshua was a great leader, David was a great leader, but all of these men made mistakes. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he never made a single mistake, did he? Never did. He had the wisdom of God and the anointing on him. And that's why it's a gift from God that he has said to, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, God has given him to us as our wisdom And he lives in us, and he can give us that wisdom that he has. So he sees right through their hypocrisy. It's a present tense. Why tempt you me? Why do you keep on? It's like he's getting annoyed. Why do you keep on doing this? Why do you keep tempting me? And so he exposes their hypocrisy in a way that may not seem evident at first. You know what? He asked them to bring him a denarius. You know why? Because he didn't have one. But guess who did? Those guys probably fished one out of their purse. Well, here, we got one. I was like, well, what do you got one for? If it's so, shouldn't have one. What are you doing with that thing, right? (laughs) And they bring it to him. And so he takes it. Look what happens in verse 16. It says, they bring that denarius to him, that silver coin. And he says unto them, whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. So one side, they they know what these coins look like. One side had the image of Caesar Tiberius stamped on there, and the superscription said, this is Tiberius Caesar, son of Augustine, the divine Augustus. He's from divinity, right? And the other side had the image of his mother sitting on a throne, and it said Pontifex Maximus, the high priest. You think this coin here to the Jews was total blasphemy to see that coin, right? So Jesus is holding that coin in his hand. They hand it to him, and he's holding it. He's probably looking at it, and he holds it back out to him. He's like, whose image and superscription is on this thing? And they answer Caesar's. And look what he says then in verse 17. And Jesus answering, said unto them, well, if that's the case, he says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Or in other words, what render mean is to give back to someone. And he's saying, so just give Caesar back his due. Pay your obligation to him, is what he's telling them. Aren't you people receiving benefits from Rome and the government of Rome and from Caesar's? They build roads that you use. Their armies are keeping the peace. And you're accepting his money to use. You got it in your pockets, right? So the coins have Caesar's pictures on them. They're his. Give him back what's his is what he's saying. So he's basically saying, oh, if you're using his money, you're accepting his rule because that's what the coins represented, right? So there was a movement that was going on in our midst a while back, a small movement about we aren't going to pay any taxes to a heathen government. I would hear that, and that was going along because our heathen government supports abortion, homosexuality, all these things that aren't right. 
But somebody told me that. I'm like, and it's, you know, we shouldn't have to do it, and da-da-da-da-da. I'm like, well, Jesus pretty clearly right here says that we're to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And as far as a heathen government, you all know that the Caesars were trained to be bisexual. I mean, they had a lot of things going on that I wouldn't say were Christian. They were about as pagan as you could get. And yet Jesus is saying, well, you give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So this whole thing about, well, we're, I'm not going to pay taxes because we have a heathen government. All governments are heathen in this world to one degree or another. It's just a matter of degrees. But there are no Christian governments. Do we understand that? Including ours. It is not Christian at all. And the rabbi said this. The rabbis back then, they said, if you accept Roman coinage, then that means you've accepted Roman rule. And so what Jesus is doing here in this verse is he is establishing the legitimacy of human government. And so the zealots, they, wouldn't, they would contend with that. They would say no human government or all human government is in direct opposition to divine authority. They wouldn't accept it. They would say God's rule is the only legitimate rule. And so they're making this question an either-or question, an either-or relationship between God and government. You're either on the side of God, they would say, or you're on the side of government, but you can't be both. That's what they were contending. And they honestly believed, these zealots did, that they were doing the will of God to try to overthrow the Roman government. I mean, they did it clear up until they were finally destroyed themselves. And what Jesus is doing here is he's taking a stance against the zealots. So he's saying submission to all government is valid because all government is established by God. He's saying you don't separate out human government and God in the sense that God is sovereign over all human affairs, including the governments that are established. That's what he's saying. And the reason he's saying that, so Jesus, we're saying he truly knew the Bible. And it's almost sometimes like these guys never read their Bible. Because I think, like we're going to read, that Jesus read or heard, and probably from some scribe or Pharisee somewhere in a synagogue, Daniel chapter 4. If you would turn back there, please. Daniel chapter 4. So we're saying Jesus is establishing that all human government is of God. And here's where he would have got it from, amongst other places. In Daniel 4, verse 28, it says, All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Those weren't good words. In verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from thee. And on he goes, and they shall drive thee from men. Thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen. And seven times shall pass over thee until you know something, that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. And he gives it. To whomsoever he will. That's critical right there at the end of that. And the same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. 
and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him that lives forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he's able to do what? He says he's able to abase them. And so Jesus recognized that any authority or power that Caesar had came from God, and God controlled the fact that Caesar was on the throne. So Jesus is saying, hey, God put him there. Give him his due. Give him what's due him. Give it back to him. Taxes, honor, obedience, whatever it is, give him his due because Caesar has power, but God has a power over him. Isn't that what we just read? Nebuchadnezzar, it says, his kingdom was given to him by God, yet God had power over him. So no ruler on this earth is going to overstep his boundaries. He can only go so far. And God has his ways of taking him out. Doesn't have a right to do whatever he wants. And we see that also, you don't have to turn to it, but in John 19, Pilate said to Jesus, he says, don't you know that I have power to crucify you or to let you go? He says, don't you know that Rome has given me that power that I can put you on a cross or I can let you go? And Jesus says, you don't understand anything. Because his answer to him was, thou couldest have no authority at all against me except it were given to you from above. So Caesar, Jesus isn't saying Caesar has unlimited power. He says, but you give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's because God has put him in there. He's put him in office. And Caesar, Rome, or anyone else, or Pilate, anyone, any government official has no authority, no power, except it were given to them from above. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't just answer the question that they gave him, did he? He didn't just stop with that. He said, he clearly, they're asking him, should we pay taxes or not? And he clearly said, what? Yes. I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> he clearly said, yes, give Caesar what is his. But he didn't stop there, did he? Because he went on to say, you must also give to God the things that are God's, because the ultimate authority belongs to God. Because everybody, presidents, kings, and all governments have to do what? They have got to submit to him. They have to. They'll learn that. And so here, look back in one chapter here in Daniel 4, look in Daniel chapter 3. These three boys knew that, so they gave the government, when they were taken to Babylon, they gave them respect, they submitted, but they were only going to submit up to a point. And so look what we have here. Nebuchadnezzar, this is before he goes crazy, eating grass for seven years. Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Well, is it true what I've heard, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not you serve my gods and worship the golden image what I have set up? I mean, that was a law. So we're told we're supposed to obey all laws. Well, what's going on here? 
He says, now if you be ready that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if you worship not, you will be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is it that God shall deliver you out of my hand? Who is that God? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. And then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said unto the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire, and the princes and governors and captains and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose body the fire had no power, nor was a hair of their heads singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. And then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word, and yielded their bodies, that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. So what's the point there? He's saying, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, but we owe God so much more than we owe Caesar, or so much more than we owe the government of the United States or any government. So Jesus is asking them whose image is on this coin. And their answer was Caesar. And Jesus says, what bears Caesar's image is Caesar's. You owe him that. Give it to him. Give him his money. Give him civil obedience. Give him respect. But here's the thing. The word for image, whose image is on that, is the same word for image that's used in Genesis 1.27. And what does that say? So God created man in his own image. And guess what? So since we are created in the image of God, he has every right over us. And just like if Caesar's image is on that coin, it's owed to him because God's image is on us. 
We owe him everything. Don't we? That's what he's saying. What do we owe God? We don't owe God money, but we owe him ourselves. If you go back to Mark 12, when they came and asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, what was his answer in Mark 12, 29 and 30? Jesus answered to him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Verse 30, And you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And he said, This is the first commandment. So as one man said, If coins bear Caesar's image, then they belong to Caesar's. But humanity, which bears God's image, belongs to to God, doesn't it? And that's what we do. We belong to God. So the question that the Pharisees and the Herodians present to Jesus was either a yes, no, or an either, or. But Jesus didn't accept their premise. And the premise was that it was either God or government. It couldn't be both. And so he didn't answer them, boy. He says, no, it's not yes, God, and no government, or vice versa. He says it's both and it's both God and government. But God has the final say-so. So God has ordained governments, every earthly government, and we are to give them their due because God's ordained them unless they require us to disobey God's will. So I think we understand that here. I don't know. You can't assume anything, right? So Christians to the state, to the government, have qualified obedience, right? It's qualified because if they ask us to do something that is a sin or against our conscience, we say, I can't, I have to, I can't do that, right? That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ran up against. They say we can't do it. Qualified obedience, but it's total subjection. And what I mean by that is, if they say, hey, if you don't pick up a gun and go shoot somebody or you don't do this, that, or the other, then we're going to do this to you. Then you say, well, look, I'm not going to fight you about it. I'm not going to take up an arm and resist the government. I'll submit to your punishment, whatever that is. But I'm not going to obey you. And that's the way we should be as Christians. So our government's decreed if you're a citizen of this country and you work here, you're required to pay taxes. And the money that we're paid, it doesn't have Caesar's picture on it. But you know whose pictures are on our money? Past presidents. Unless you're like Aaron and you got a $100 bill in your wallet. And who's on that, Aaron? Do you know? Benjamin Franklin. Look, you got one. I know you do. I just teased you. Well, Benjamin Franklin's on that $100 bill, right? But it also has on the front and the back, it says the United States of America on any money that you have, right? Printed on the front and back, a superscription. And don't we benefit from our government? Don't we? Safe air travel, safe food, water, roads, bridges, many beautiful national parks, national security, federal laws against murder, kidnapping, bank robberies, and on and on and on. And so God has ordained that governments give us these benefits, right? That's what he said. They keep the peace, so to speak. And they do other things, right? That's just the way it is. And so we are to pay taxes. But let me ask you, what if Congress passed a law that made it illegal to deny church membership to anybody that's a transgender, a homosexual, or someone that is living in fornication, living together? 
What if they pass a law that says you as a church, you can't keep somebody like that out? Do we have to obey that? Not at that point, do we? Because we got the Bible that says you better get them out, right? And so at that point, we're like, we have to obey God rather than men, and we'll just take whatever penalty you're going to impose on us, right? Or what if every state in the union recognizes these same-sex marriage, which is where we're headed? Do we have to recognize them as a church? No, we better not. Or if every state, and this is one that I am like scratching my head over. So just because these states, and it probably will be national before too long, just like the same-sex marriage, just because Colorado and I don't know what other states have made smoking marijuana legal, then does that mean it's okay for us to do it? I mean, come on. Look, you're talking to an ex-dope head, okay? Way back when, I'm telling you, that is not of God in any sense of the word, medicinal or otherwise. And most people are smoking it for the otherwise. I saw something where they're questioning this whole medicinal use of marijuana. But I'm seeing they're having to come out with books now. And I've heard it here, whatever, about people wondering, is it okay to smoke dope? I'm like, come on, why do they call it dope? It's a weed. You go around smoking weeds, I'm saying, and it's, there's, <laughs> you know, it's not like drinking. They'll have all their logic, all their reasons, and it's just not of God, okay? Pharmacia is still there. It's a drug. It deadens your hypothalamus, which your hypothalamus is the part of your brain that controls how much you eat, your sense of balance, and all these other things. It temporarily deadens your hypothalamus, and that's why people get what's called the munchies, or they're a little disoriented. They're just, their coordination's not quite like it was. So to say that's God, please. So just because it's nationally okay doesn't mean it's okay with the Lord, right? Thank you. Amen. So Jesus is setting forth a principle right here in the Gospels that Paul in Romans 13 and Peter in 1 Peter 2 uses as a basis for our attitude towards government as Christians. And Peter wrote this, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the King of Supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Now, if you just took Peter's statement right there and isolated it all by itself, it sounds like you should just obey everything the government says without question. But that's not all Peter ever said, because the same Peter in Acts chapter 4 when they commanded him and John not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, he said this, he says, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you're going to have to be the judge of that. He says, but for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And later, the next chapter, chapter 5, when all of the apostles were arrested and put in jail, the angel of the Lord came and supernaturally delivered them and they went to the temple, and they, the, the angel told them, you go back and you keep speaking those words of life, which they did. They go to find him. Where are they? They're not in the jail. Well, they're in the temple. How did they get there? So they go and they arrest them again. And the high priest said unto him, did we not straightly command you, you should not teach in this name? And behold, you filled all Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. It says, and then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And that's the principle, isn't it? If God's will is to do something, then we need to obey God rather than men. That's first and foremost. So 
Jesus gave that statement, render unto Caesar the things under Caesar, but it's qualified by render unto God, first and foremost, the things that are God's. That's not hard to get, is it? I don't think that's too hard to understand. But how does all this apply to us? The first thing I would say, when Jesus is saying, hey, the zealot position is not good, he's rejecting violence as an alternative to an oppressive government. They're coming to him and they're thinking, man, Jesus is probably like this Judas. He's probably going to try to rise up and cause an insurrection, maybe use a violent mean. I don't know. That's what they're doing. They're probably hoping he's going to do that. He's saying, no, that's not what Jesus says. You're to love your enemies. He taught non-resistance, which we've been taught here and we will be taught again, right? But that's not the American attitude, non-resistance. And I'll tell you, our country was founded on resistance to doing what? Paying taxes. So the British government, in case you didn't know, they'd gone into great debt to fund and win the French and Indian War. Went into a lot of debt. And after that, they felt like, hey, we can't have somebody else just coming in there and invading our colonies. we got a lot of money invested in there. So they said, we're going to keep about 10,000 troops there to protect the people there from another invasion of another country. Well, guess what? That takes a lot of money. So look at it this way. If the British government hadn't won the French and Indian War, guess what wouldn't have existed? Colonies. So they kind of owed their existence to the British government. And the British government is like, look, we just all we're going to do is we need to get some of that money back because we're like having battles. We're fighting everywhere. We're a little bit broke. And you guys have really made us made us broke. And so they thought it was reasonable to levy some taxes on the Americans to help pay the cost. And the citizens, here's the thing people don't know. The citizens of the colonies paid way less taxes than the people in Britain did at the time. Way less taxes. And they were heading towards paying lower taxes. But here's the thing. Just the fact that the idea that they had raised taxes and could possibly raise them again, the people of this nation, when it was founded, said, we're not going to put up with that. And they rebelled. And it became civil disobedience, which eventually led to a war with much bloodshed, the Revolutionary War. So let me ask you a question based on what we've read tonight and the little band that some people like to put on their hand. What would Jesus do? Let me ask you, if Jesus lived during the time of the American colonies, during all that and the taxation, what do you think he would have done? You think he would have sided with the 13 colonies in rebelling against Britain and saying, we're not paying your taxes anymore to the point of war? You think he would have agreed to killing men for financial gain? Because that's what it was all about. That was the bottom line of the Revolutionary War. I don't think he would have. Because what was Rome? What was Rome doing? They're levying taxes on Jerusalem. There was no, there was, it's a taxation without representation. Wasn't that the cry of the colonies? Well, I don't think Jerusalem was being represented very well. And yet Jesus said, you go on and pay your taxes to Rome, didn't he? Boy, got that American spirit. It seems like it's alive and well tonight. I'm telling you, this country is not a Christian nation. And I know that's a hard thing for people to hear, but that's the way it is. Not founded on Christian principles. So I'm not saying there weren't people that were Christians that were part of all of that, but this has never been a Christian nation. It's not.
So the second thing we can see from here is the Bible clearly teaches that we are citizens of heaven. It teaches that all through the New Testament. And our allegiance is first and foremost to whom? Our King Jesus. But it also, what we're looking at tonight, clearly teaches that except in a few instances, it's more the exception than the rule of conscience. We should be what? We should be to our nation and our government model citizens, shouldn't we? We should be obeying the law. We should be seeking peace. We shouldn't be out demonstrating, picketing, rioting, protesting. We're to pray for our government, aren't we? That's what we've been taught. Paying taxes, being the salt of the earth, helping people out, not having to have the government help us, have us help people out. We just do it because we're Christians, not because it's, we're involved in some government program, even though you could, you could do that through a government program, no problem. But our allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus. We pledge our allegiance to him, not the flag, but we, are, we should be the best citizens this country has. We really should be. So we owe Caesar, the government, taxes, honor, the responsibility to be good citizens, but we don't owe the government what we owe God. Because we owe the Lord our love and our obedience and our lives because we're made in his image and we owe him everything. We don't owe our government that. The state is under his rule and is answerable to God, right? So we need to remember the three Hebrew boys. We don't love our government and all that. When it comes to the point that they're asking us to sin, we say, I'm sorry, I can't because I've got a higher allegiance that you should be under too. And you're asking me something to violate this higher allegiance. I can't do it. I'm sorry. I'll take whatever consequences you think I have to have. I'm living here. But I'm not going to do it. That's what we have to remember. The he three Hebrew boys. Not going to bow the knee. I'll take the punishment, whatever it is, and I'll trust God to deliver me. Just like they did. Right? Because when we pay taxes, we're not doing it because we think our government is perfect or righteous or involved in just wars. Why are we doing it? We're doing it because we're obeying the Lord. Peter said, submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. So we pay taxes and we do all that for conscience's sake because God asked us to do that because he said he's ordained government and all authority. And so really it starts in the family because people that they don't have authority exercised in their family, these are the ones that are out there shooting policemen, rioting, throwing things, creating all this havoc and showing total disrespect to policemen because they never had to show it to their parents. And then they don't show it to their teachers. Ask Mrs. Murphy about that. They don't show it to their teachers. They don't show it to anybody. And that's a generation we have coming up here in this Christian nation. So we submit and obey the government for the Lord's sake. That's what he says. And so let's finish by turning over to Romans 13. Romans 13, verses 1 through 8, and it says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers or authority, for there is no authority except from whom? But of God, and the powers that be... They are ordained of God, whether it's our government, the Chinese government, the Russian government, anybody, any government that is in authority, it was ordained of God. Verse 2, whosoever therefore resists the authority, resists the appointment or ordinance of whom? Of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. 
For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power or the authority? Do that which is good, and you'll have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if you do that which is evil, then you need to be afraid. For he bears not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that does evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only because you're afraid of getting punished, but he says why, but also for conscience sake. He's saying because God's the one that has established these governments. So to rebel against them is to rebel against the Lord you say you serve. Verse 6, for this cause, he says, you should pay tribute also, pay your taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render, give back to, there's that word again, pay back their dues, therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Oh, no man, anything, give everybody what they're owed. Oh, no man, anything, but here's one obligation he's saying will never pay off. We'll always have this obligation. Oh, no man, anything but to love one another, for he that loves one another has fulfilled the law. Well, I think that's all pretty straightforward, isn't it? I think so. So what's the Lord's word to us tonight? Render, pay back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and most importantly, we need to give God the things that are God's, which is our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we just thank you for the words you've given us and that you've given us the answer to what should our attitude be towards any government that we're involved with, Lord, whether it's a good government, an evil government. But you've answered that question for us, Lord, and we just thank you that you've done that. And we just thank you, Lord, that we can just see the wisdom that resides in you and in the Lord Jesus Christ, that authority and wisdom and power that was his and that he has promised to give to us. That when men come to trip us and trap us, Lord, that you will give us answers that will trap them instead and that you will deliver us from their snares. And I just thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and for your hand on us. And we just pray that now in Jesus name. Amen.